0: <laughs> All right. <laughs> Happy Halloween, everybody. I knew everyone was gonna tease me for starting class on time tonight. <laughs> but you see, uh because it's Halloween, uh a bunch of um a bunch of uh, uh normal activities that usually happen on Wednesday night didn't happen tonight. So I've actually had an unusually quiet evening. Um <laughs> anyway, welcome, welcome. Um <laughs> oh, Karita's mad at me because I'm not in costume. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's the spookiest thing I've seen all day. Says Stephen. I know, I know. Right. Um. So yeah, sorry, Karina. Sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not in costume. Uh, I I I don't usually do much dressing up for Halloween. Um. But uh. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. It's uh. It's uh. Bad form. (laughs) It's bad form, I know. Um, Okay, so tonight is session 16 of our uh, uh, trip through La Morte d'Arthur. Before I start quick, um, I have a a few notes about tonight's class. Uh, I I don't know if I want to call it an apology uh, for tonight's reading exactly, but something close to that. But before that, uh, a couple quick announcements. First, uh, and most urgently... Uh, we've been having a, uh, uh, a sale, we've been running a special in celebration of Chaucer's death day, you may recall, uh, on my uh, Chaucer 2, my Canterbury Tales class. So $75 for any time audit access uh, to the Canterbury Tales class. Uh, that special ends tonight. It's like mere hours away. So <clears throat> now is the very, very last moment uh, at which you can take advantage of, the, uh, of, that, uh, uh, of that sale. On the Canterbury Tales class, um, we've had a, a bunch of orders today, which has been really fun. So, um, uh, anyway, uh, that's um, uh, so. Just wanted to make sure to that, to remind you of that. If you were thinking about ordering the Canterbury Tales class and haven't gotten around to it, now would be the good time to do that. Here in the background while we're doing class, so keep that in mind. Uh, secondly. Um, we have our next moot is coming up, uh, we've, uh, having just been in L.A. last weekend, which was great fun, uh, and uh, uh, really quite special fun. The uh, remarkable combination of uh, 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 regional moot plus uh, World Series. I mean, man, that was, uh, that was unreal. Uh, so anyway... Ellie uh, uh, Moot was uh, was great fun, um, and we're doing Magnolia Moot in a week and a half next weekend. Saturday, November tenth, will be in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I hope that all of you who are in the uh, in the area down there, who are in uh, the Greater Charlotte uh, region, can can drive to 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 Charlotte. Will uh, be able to come and join me. Um, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a fun uh, little Moot down there in Charlotte. So I'm I'm looking forward to. Uh, to meeting people down there, so don't forget registration is going to stay open here for a little bit. Um, so that'll be that'll be you know you still have a, you still have some chances here, but of course it's uh, it's coming up. So don't forget to register for that. Okay, so those are my quick announcements for today. Um, I want <clears throat> to see. I want to. We're. I'm trying not to get too far behind uh, in the Tristram. The Sir Tristram section because it would be easy to get bogged down and I don't want to be. Um, in particular, since the the main th- the thing the sort of introductory comments I wanted to make about uh, Maori's treatment of the Tristan and Isolde story is to some extent. So the story of Sir Tristram and Isolde is sort of the secondary romance in many different senses of that word, right? On the one hand, it's the secondary romance in that you know, it's like the they also ran, right? You've got Lancelot and Guinevere as the great romance and you've got Tristan and Isolde as like the other great romance, but it's clearly secondary, right? Just as Tristram is clear is the number two knight in the world, but he's clearly number two. He's, he's under Lancelot. And we can see, of course, in the very end of today's assigned reading, you can see how Isolde is under Guinevere, right? She writes to Guinevere for advice, um, showing who is the number one lady in the world, right? Um, so... They're secondary in that sense. They're, you know, they're they're secondary in the like also ran sense, right, of being not quite the greatest romance between the greatest knight and the greatest lady in the world. But they're also secondary, I think, in a different and a more important sense. And that is, they're kind of, well, I don't want to call them the warm up band for the tragedy of Lancelot and Guinevere, um, but they're almost like that. Um, one of the things that you may have noticed, and I'd be a little bit... I'd be I'd be interested to hear your thoughts and uh, your thoughts and reactions um, uh, to the Tristan and his old story, because by the end of today's class, I mean, by the end of today's reading, um, we've gotten through the vast majority of the Tristram and his old material. Like, I, I, most of the events that he's going to... Uh, bring I mean, Trist- Sir Tristram and Isolde are still going to be characters uh, whom Mallory's is going to maintain for a while. When I say the Tristan and Isolde material, I mean the stuff that he's bringing in from the sources, right? So when you read, you know, the romance of of Tristan and Isolde, uh, you know, in one of the old, uh, uh, in one of the, in one of those French books uh, that uh, uh, that Mallory is referring to, he's covered most of the material uh, from those romances. So. It's not exactly done. We haven't brought it to any kind of ending point, but but he's kind of crammed it all in there. Uh, and crammed is really the word, right? It's uh, I said I'd be interested to hear from you. What I would mostly be interested to hear from you is, did you have a hard time following this? This is one of those things I was um, actually at l a moot this past weekend. I was making this analogy in a completely different context. We were talking about adaptation, which was the theme of the of the of the conference and one of the things I was talking about was in my keynote was basically sort of like what makes a good adaptation and kind of some some thoughts about that specifically applied to tolkien but um, in the context of that, one of the things that I was saying is you've got to make sure uh, that you know it is possible of course it's it's in fact quite easy to have an adaptation which Keeps faithfulness to the original uh, as a as a as a really high priority, uh, and a puts places a secondary priority on like the integrity of its own story, right? And so one example that I was pointing to to illustrate this was the film version of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, uh, which I found bewildering to watch. And I found myself desperately clinging to my memories of the book in order to put together... I mean, they, they, they tried to just do everything, right, uh, briefly uh, in, in that film. Uh, you just kind of cram the whole, like, 800-page book into a, like, two-and-a-half-hour film. Uh, and I, 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 while I was watching it, I found myself wondering, would somebody who is watching this movie... Without ever having read the book, would they even be able to follow it? i mean i there were so many things that seemed like only uh you know thumbnails right like just little uh illusions which you'll follow you know if you remember the book, you'll be able to keep track of what's going on but it was uh it was it was hard I mean several of the Harry Potter films are kind of like that um but uh and by like like that, I mean focused more on, you know, doing a sort of a summary of the entire book rather than uh, really thinking about the integrity of their story independently, the story of the film. Anyhow, um, so... My sense is, uh, I, I get, I, I get a similar kind of reaction, not for the same reason, but a similar kind of reaction to Maori's treatment of the Trishumini's old story, um, because like so many of the elements are in there, but they're just kind of chucked together and often treated really, really uh, 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 briefly, right? Very, very briefly, um, such that. Sometimes you lose any point to them whatsoever. So like, for instance, do you remember that little incident where Tristram is like holed up in a chapel and then he gets back to the court and he's like, where's Isolde?" old? And they're like, oh, she's off at the Wepper colony. Right. She's at the Lazzarcoat. Um And he's like, hey, that's not appropriate. And they're like, yeah, it's really kind of not. And he goes and rescues her. And it's like the whole thing, like her being sent to her being at the Wepper colony. Like, how did she get there? Why is she there? What the heck is going on? And it takes like Maori spends like three sentences on it at most, right? We get like the one really brief reference, uh, to like the Lazar code to the leper colony, and it's like what is going on there? And I mean like The Order of the Phoenix, right, I was able to hold it together while watching the film because I did remember the book pretty well, so I'm like, okay, alright, I'm tracking, I'm tracking and I felt myself doing the same thing when I've been rereading this past week, this section of Mallory, I felt myself doing the same thing with the Tristan and Isolde story, right I'm like remembering the other versions of, you know, the, 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 the couple French, you know, there are two major French versions and the German version I mentioned um, which are sort of the two most prominent versions of Tristan and Isolde by Tomas and Berul, by the way B-E-R-O-U-L and Tomas. Um, those are the two uh, uh, French authors um, who uh, wrote the main Tristan and his old French stories that that, uh, uh, that Mallory's working with here. So, I mean, I, I remember the business about the Wepper colony, but it got a great deal more of attention, right? So it's just, you know, it's almost like he's kind of checking off points, right? Like, the, oh, yeah, they, this happened and this happened and this happened. Okay, check, check, check. We've done the whole Tristan and his old story. So I remember... Uh, last time I read Mallory, uh, having the feeling that he was being a little bit half-hearted in telling the Tristan and his old story, uh, and I was um, sort of not quite sure why uh, he uh, he seems to be he seems to be kind of. I mean, one could make the argument that sort of the Tristan and his old story is kind of falling, you know, in between two stools here, right? It's like he's he is neither really doing justice to the Tristan and his old story, nor is he just skipping it, right? So instead he's like, okay, middle ground, right? Let's, uh, rip through the whole thing, uh, and, uh, but, like, not really try to do any kind of narrative, uh, justice to it really at all, right? Um, so, anyhow, um... So first I I wanted to kind of apologize for that, but, but it's not just that one of the things that was really kind of fun actually, uh, in reading at this time is that it began to make a little bit more sense to me. I began to see for really the first time, uh, in my, uh, my reading, you know, my, whenever I've, I've done more sort of detailed work, like articles that I've written and stuff like that, it's been on the later stuff the the, the sort of high profile stuff, um, I've never really worked closely with the Tristan and old material before, mostly because, again, most people don't read it much. Most people skip it when they teach it in class, and uh, very few people, you know, because Tolkien doesn't make much of a contribution, you know, to, like, the story, the, the legend of Tristram and old. There is, like, zero people ever who have been like, ah, oh, Mallory's version of Tristram and old is the greatest, most beautiful Tristan and his old story out there. Like, nobody, ever thought that or said that. Um, so again, a lot of people just kind of skip it, but including, well, I'd never like, totally skipped it. But um, as I said, I've, I haven't thought about it quite as much. But this time I've been seeing some patterns here, which begin to help me make sense of it in ways that I hope is going to be useful. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, As I was looking at all these random elements, my first thought was, again, as my thought has generally been, when we have come to this, like, why are we getting this sort of bewildering set of, like, this happened and, oh, this other thing happened, and and with almost no attempt at any kind of narrative continuity, um, you'll notice that, like, Mark is trying to kill Tristram, and then everything's fine again, right? And, like, he escapes with his old, and they live in the woods for a while, and then Mark comes after them, and then they kind of just go home again after a while. And then they're back in the court again, and then they're being discovered again, right? And now she's being put on trial for, like, the third time, and he rescues her. And, oh, but then they go back to the court again, and everything's fine again, right? That kind of thing keeps happening. Um, So... You know why? Why? Why give us all of these details? Why continue to have us kind of herring around after these snippets? Really, snippets, essentially. This these little um, uh, uh, brief moments in the story, rather than uh, just either letting us, because we know n- Mallory can tell a story, right, and make it fit together, uh, and and really make it work. He just doesn't seem to want to here. So what does he want to do? And that's the thing that I I have my new theory on. So my new theory is he wants us to see each one of these, to pay attention to each one of these individual elements because they're all going to be important later. Um, The title of the class tonight is A Blueprint for Tragedy because that is, I think, what he is doing with the story of Tristram and Isolde. Um, It is... Secondary to the story of Lancelot and Guinevere, not just in the sense that it's in second place or that it's second best and therefore treated more half-heartedly by him, but it's secondary in the sense that it's it derives its significance from how it. it informs us or prepares us for the story of Lancelot and Guinevere. When you look at each one of those elements, each one of those, which taken on their own in the Trishmane's old story, is, seems kind of random. And again, it's hard to see how it fits into a continuous narrative. But each one of those elements is going to be important later, right? It brings up something. It compels us to think about something which we will want to remember when we come back to it almost add almost everything not the leper colony thing so much but almost everything else uh in the story of tristram and Isolde is gonna be relevant we will see the parallel later on um there's gonna be a a, a quite direct parallel and that's the as soon as i started noticing that i'm like oh this is just like that later see oh and this is just like aha right this is the pattern that we're seeing they're there, as I say, almost like the warm-up act, but that makes it sound sillier than it is. Um, what we're seeing is, as I say, a blueprint for tragedy, right? The tragedy of uh, Tristram and Isolde is a lowercase t tragedy, right? Um, this is not going to uh, be a tragedy of epic Proportions, it's not going to tear down the Arthurian court. You know, um, the whole world that ha- we've been building and living in during the course of this book so far is not going to be lying in ruins as a consequence of the tragedy of this romance, right? And yet, in this romance, this smaller scale romance, this secondarily important romance, um, we are going to see all of the elements which are going to contribute uh, uh, later on so that we're going to be primed for those, right. And we're going to be ready, uh, when we see them later on. So that is the, that's the thing that I want to really emphasize, um, when we're looking through this. So to some extent, I'm not going to really try to make sense of the overall narrative of Tristan and Isolde, because I, there's not that much of an overall narrative to make sense of what I'm going to do is try to isolate, to identify the pieces that you're going to want to notice, right? Because they'll be important later, not for themselves, uh, but because they're going to be parallel later on. They are, it's all a kind of foreshadowing um, uh, that of what we're going to see. Some of it is direct setup of character development that will be happening later on, um, but a lot of it is really just anticipation of, you know, the... Uh, exploration of the raw materials that are going to be formed into a much more uh, uh, coherent story uh, of the tragedy of Lancelot and Guinevere. So, all right. That's what we're going to be looking at here tonight. So let's... um, We were we were just about to get Tristram out of Ireland the first time, right? So he was over there uh, cunningly disguising himself as Tram Trist, uh, and uh, La old was falling in love with him, right? Okay, so she was in love with him, and he seemed to be into her, though—I don't know if it's just me, but it kind of seemed like she was more into him than he was into her— Um but I don't uh Maybe that's unfair. Uh, but anyway, uh, we had the rivalry with Sir Palamides, which we had introduced. Right. So uh, he, Sir Palamides, the Saracen knight, remember, um, you know, he is a he is a Muslim knight who is there in Christendom for reasons. And uh, he's, he's establishing his reputation. He and his brother, Sir, Sir Safir, right? Now, his brother, Sir Safir, remember, it has already been mentioned, has been christened, right? He has converted to Christianity, but Palamides has not, right? Um, and Palamides is a great knight, one of the top five, generally, you know, uh, yeah, he's one of the top five knights in the world. Um, but he unfortunately chooses as his rival the number two knight in the world, right? He falls in love with La Labelizod. And now keep in mind that um, in some ways he's a perfectly legitimate candidate for La Belle Isolde, right? Especially knowing, if we if we do know, right, um, what's coming with Trisham and, and, and Isod. Um, that is to say, the tragic romance that's going to come. In many ways, of course, one can look back back at those early scenes and say, you know what? Maybe she should have just married palomides, right you know he, he he said he would you know be christened right he said he was going to he was going to convert and be baptized, and then they could get married and who knows maybe they would have gone on to have a a, a perfectly happy uh, marriage, and all of this uh, all these difficulties would have been avoided um, but of course that 's not what 's going to happen. And so that is where we so we see the beginning but we it will be a while before we will see the end of this rivalry between Palamides and uh Tristram. Remember Tristram uh takes Palamides down he's performing really well uh Tristram encounters with him and knocks him off his horse chases him off the field and fights with him uh, uh on foot uh with swords and uh beats him again right and makes him swear a vow to give up on Isolde And to um, uh, to not bear arms again for a year, which, as I was saying last time, is a little bit above and beyond. That's um, a little mean uh, by Tristram. He is uh, uh, he is, as Lancelot might say, letting him of his honor, right, of his worship in ways which are which is perhaps a little bit uh, a little bit unkind, understandable in arrival, right? Arrival for your lady, but, um, but, uh, unkind, nevertheless. Okay. So, Tershom's got to leave because he's been made, right? Uh, so the mother-in-law, uh, Old's mother, the Queen of Ireland, uh, she ha- still has that fragment of sword that she took out of the brain pan of Sir Marhalt, right? And she, like, does the forensic thing with, uh... Uh, with uh, Tristram's sword and finds that that shard fits directly out of the little bite taken out of the uh, sword of Tristram, which they discover while he's in the bath um, again by the way that de- that detail another classic example right again d- 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 he's lifting that Maori's lifting that directly out of the sources. Tristram is always in the bathtub when this is discovered, right, but usually that's put to some kind of dramatic use uh most notably uh, he is will become th- he will be threatened uh with the sword, usually even his own sword um while he's in the bath right and naked and helpless um and so there's like a, 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 I think in one of them it's it's old herself who is really upset about uh Marholt's death and so she um you know the, like the fact this is the guy who murdered her brother even though in the other one he's a monster but whatever don't worry about it um anyway, she's upset to find that he is the guy who, you know, uh, turned out to be. And so she's going to, like, stab him in the bath. But then, like, she doesn't and everything. So, But again, it's like the, the dramatic scene is set up, right? There's Tristram in the bath, and it's discovered, and nothing happens, right, and it's just like, anyway, then he got out of the bath, and uh, then he went before King Anguishance, and Anguishance is like, oh, it's fine, I don't want to kill you, um, but you should probably leave, because, you know, my wife is probably going to try to poison you or something, so get out uh, uh, while the getting's good, and, you know, and so he, uh, Tristram and Anguishons leave on very good terms, right, and now he's going to go to take his leave of La Belle Isote. "'Than Sir Tristramas went unto Labeli's ode, and took his leave, and then he told what he was, and how a laddie told him that he shall never be whole until I come into this country where the poison was mad, wherethrough I was near my death had not your ladyship been.' Ah, gentle knight," said La Zod, full woe I am of thy departing, for I saw never man that ever I ocht so good will to. And therewithal she wept heartily. Madam, said Sir Tristramus, ye should understand that my, naim, my name is Sir Tristramus de Lioness, gotten of a king and born of a queen, and I promise you faithfully, I shall be all the days of my life your knight." Gra mercy, said La Belle Isode, and I promise you there against, I, I promise you there against, I shall not be married this seven years, but by your assent, and home that ye will, I shall be married to him, and he will have me if ye will consent thereto. Ah, so that's a, uh, uh, a, a what Mallory would call a large proffer. Uh, by Isolde there at the end, right? Um, she's being a little forward here, right? This is, there's some fairly heavy hinting going on here, right? I promise you, I'm not going to marry anybody for seven fully. I will wait for seven years, which is kind of a big deal, right? I mean, she's already of childbearing years, and she says you're going to wait seven years to get married. Again, it's a big deal, right? Um, so, you know, like the whole, like, let's wait till we're 30 to get married was not a thing we did in the Middle Ages, right? Um, but anyway, okay, so um, she's like, I won't marry anybody for seven years uh, unless you consent to it, right? I will only marry to somebody that you suggest, you know, whoever you might suggest that I get married to. And of course, this in part is setting up the tragedy, which is going to be coming. But we can also see from the beginning here that the there seems a an easy way in which this, um, this story could pan out perfectly well, right? The two of them seem well-suited to each other. Uh, you know, her dad is cool with it, right? I mean, that doesn't seem like that would be a big obstacle. He's, you know, it's not, there is no, like... I mean, there's a little bit of Romeo and Juliet going on in the sense of, like, the warring houses, right? I mean, Ireland and Cornwall have obviously had some issues in the past and whatever, but, you know, still, it's fine, right? I mean, they, like, uh, you know, bygones with King Anguishans and and stuff. So, um, but um, anyway, uh, so, yeah, yeah. Oh, and so, yeah, people are talking about life expectancy in the Middle Ages a really important thing to keep in mind life expectancy in the middle ages is low just because people die right like people die of disease and most importantly women die in childbirth of course the the the, the when people calculate the life expectancy it takes into account all those those. You're, you're much likely to be, much likelier to be carried off, right? But sometimes modern people speak as if, you know, they say, like, oh, the life expectancy in the Middle Ages was only 30, as if, therefore, people in the Middle Ages considered 30-year-olds old. They didn't, right? It's not, A 30-year-old is not old, right? An old man or an old woman, when you meet an old man or an old woman in medieval literature, they're still, like, you know... 60s and 70s usually is what they would consider old. Um, But, like, everybody dies young, right? And that's that's how they would have said it. Like, everybody dies young. Like, you know, so if you were carried off at the age of 30, they still would have said you died young. They just would have been not surprised that you were carried off at the age of 30. Not to mention the massive infant mortality rate, right? So you've got the massive infant mortality rate, which skews the numbers a very great deal. Um, It's assumed, Assumed, if you have multiple children, you will probably bury at least one of them. I mean, a family that has that has not buried at least one child um, is uh, uh, is very very unusual. And as I said, one out of every three births, on average, leads to the death of the mother. Right. So so uh, childbed mortality also huge. So those are massive factors. And of course disease carries folks off. So. It's not that people aged differently, or even that people thought about aging differently. What they thought about is how likely you were to to get old right uh so it's not like again they had in mind like thirty is the goal like if you've if you've hit thirty you're made um but but rather that uh, you know the nor the their life expectancy like you know if we grow old, you know, Lord willing, if we grow old, that will be, you know, that people live to like, you know, their stories of 80 year olds and all that kind of thing. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, anyway, there, there's a lot of people, uh, it, 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 it's something that I, a lot of people talk about sometimes that I just wanted to kind of clarify a little bit. Um, but anyway, okay. So, um, uh, right. So, this leave-taking, it's we can see this prospect of the happy ending, right? A simple happy ending, like Tristram proposed to the girl, right? Why not? What's stopping him? Why not, right? I mean, okay, mother-in-law issues, right? There would be, you know, that would be, you know, some 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 tense moments at the wedding, sure. Uh, maybe give it some time, but um, but you know, again, the dad's okay, and uh, you know, they're matched well. Politically, by birth, uh, you know, this seems fine, Tristram, right? So um, it's and this is one of the elements, by the way, which is in which the story of Tristram and Isolde is most emphatically different from the story of Lancelot and Guinevere, right? There's no what if with Lancelot and Guinevere. There's no prospect of a happy ending with the story with the story of other than just sort of remaining in virtuous and admirable love for each other until they both die, right? That's really the only good option for Lancelot and Guinevere. Tristram and Isolde, there, there is a what if, right? And it is one thing I think that separates their relationship from uh, the relationship of Lancelot and Guinevere, right? There's like, Tristram and Isolde had a shot. They did. They had a shot at happiness. It could have worked out differently. And I think that Mallory goes out of his way. um, uh, Mallory goes out of his way, I think, to draw attention to the, the could have been right. Um, To the fact that they only end up in a tragic situation because they, and in particular Tristram screws it up, right. It is by his bad choices uh, that they end up in the tragic situation. Um, and, uh, I, and I, I think there as well, we have Tristram and Isold serving as a kind of foil to Lancelot and Guinevere, right? Lancelot and Guinevere are in this situation where they don't meet until after she's married, right? And married to the, to Arthur himself, right? So um, the their situation is fraught with difficulties literally from day one, right? Um, the fact that uh, Tristram and Isolde could have made it. Right. Could have could have could have gone legit and been fine. Um, makes puts the whole thing in a different context. Right. Um, you there's a sense in which you can't blame Lancelot and Guinevere. Right. Where you can blame Tristram and his old. I, and that seems to be one of the things that he kind of keeps hitting on here. Um, then Tristram goes back home. And there he lived long in great joy, long time, until at the last there befell a jealousy and an unkindness betwixt King Mark and Sir Tristramus. So what's the issue there with King Mark and Sir Tristram? So the issue, notice the the, the friction between King Mark and Sir Tristram predates the issues with Isolde, right? King Mark has like never met Isolde. He's like, I mean, he's probably heard of her. Right. But she's not on the radar screen and there's already problems. So, again, notice how things are kind of more rotten here in the state of Cornwall uh, than they are in Arthur's court. Right. In Arthur's court, Lancelot and Guinevere, everything's fine among all three of them. Right. Everything's peachy at the beginning. Things are not peachy from before we even get into a love triangle situation with Mark and Tristram, right? Um, there's already jealousy and unkindness, which shows us, by the way, of course, among other things, you know, Tristram is going to come in for his fair share of criticism, which he richly deserves. But Mark is a jerk. And so, I mean, one of the things that we see here from the beginning, inasmuch as there is jealousy and unkindness betwixt King Mark and Sir Tristram's, That's a bad look for King Mark, right? Sir Tristram is his champion, right? He is the greatest knight of uh, Cornwall. And he's not just the greatest of all of the knights of Cornwall, right? We've already seen how Cornish knights, that's like a byword uh, in this world, right? People make fun of Cornish knights. Uh, People say things like, oh, I'm shamed forever. I got unseated by a Cornish knight. Holy cow. I'll never live that down, right? I mean, the Knights of Cornwall are the laughing stock of Britain uh, and except for Tristram. right. So it's not just that like Tristram is the greatest of all of the Knights of Cornwall. He is the only one of the Knights of Cornwall who distinguishes himself, who, you know, builds an international reputation, right. So Sir Tristram is by far the crown jewel of the court of King Mark. And King Mark should by all rights, not only be extremely proud, Of Tristram, but should be all about supporting him, right? His like there's, um, some sort of obvious expectations of how Mark is going, and even apart from the familial relationship, right? Mark is Tristram's uncle, so he is his kinsman as well. Um, But again, it's just like one thing stacked on another, which should make King Mark be the kindest, best, most generous, most thoughtful benefactor of Sir Tristram that any knight ever had, right? I mean, um, King Mark should, like, be, you know, buying him cotton candy and a pony on every occasion that he possibly can, right? And instead we see jealousy and unkindness between them, and that's just just a character flaw in King Mark, right? He's just... uh, not only a bad person, he's a bad king. Okay. Um, so we can see that already right away. And what's the problem? For they loved both Onladi. And she was an heirless wife that that hicked Sir Segwardes. Okay. So there's this other dude's wife. So there's we start off with a love triangle between Tristram and Mark that has nothing to do with La Belisolde, right? Um, there's this other dude's wife that they both are in love with and in a rivalry over. Uh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Carita says, wait, what? Yeah, I know. I always do that same thing too. He's just gotten back from the island. Now keep in mind... He lived long in great joy long time right so it's been presumably a couple of years since he came home from Ireland you know maybe he and La Belle older are still pen pals maybe not but um you know it's like it's been lots of time and um yeah so there's this other woman exactly uh and um anyway Tristram is uh loves her in you know. Uh, some sense of loving. So yeah, as Tarloniel says, Tristram ain't waiting no seven years. Yeah, no, exactly. Um he didn't promise, right? She promised, he didn't promise. Uh anyway, so they're both in love with this other guy's wife. <laughs> Sir Seguarides. Oh man. I feel bad for Sir Seguarides. Okay. And this Lottie loved Sir Tristram is passingly well. And he loved here again, for she was a passing fair laddie. And that espied Sir Tristram as well. (laughs) I love that phrase. (laughs) She was really hot. And he totally noticed, right? He was like, hey, she's super attractive, isn't she? I noticed that all by myself. Right, okay. Then King Mark understood that and was jealous, for King Mark loved here passingly well. So it befell upon a die. This laddie sent a dwarf unto Sir Tristramus and bade him, as he loved here, that he would be with her the next neaked following. Also, she, so this is the dwarf speaking, she charged you that ye come not to her, but if ye be well armed, for her lord was called a good knicht. Okay, so Sir Segwardes' wife is sending a dwarf with a message to Tristram saying hey, if you love me, come to my place, right? But bring your weapons and armor because, you know, my husband might come back and, you know, uh, he's a good knight, right? So you got to be ready to defend yourself if you're going to come visit me. Sir Tristramas answered to the dwarf and said, recommend me unto my laddie and tell her I will not file, but I shall be with her the term that she hath set me. And therewith the dwarf departed. Okay, so um, he's like, yeah, okay. Because I noticed you're attractive, so I'm into this. So I'm gonna uh, pursue this assignation, uh, and I'm gonna bring my armor, and it's gonna be it's gonna be great. Yana, um, I don't fully understand the nature of dwarfs. Yana's uh, 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 asking a great question: Are dwarfs supposed to indicate something supernatural, or are they just like little people, or or a combination? on the one hand, dwarfs, it's very noticeable that we get both dwarfs and giants fairly regularly. Right. Um, And the giants seem clearly to be abnormal. Right. That is like supernatural magical in some sense. Um, uh, Dwarfs, Less so. In fact, the dwarfs—the primary dwarfs that we've seen—tend to be servants, right? Um, uh, they, I, I'm of course, most notably Sir Gareth and his dwarf, right? Who are both sort of touchingly devoted to each other. Um, you know they, they they have a they have a they have a great and 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 from all I can see perfectly lovely relationship right between uh gareth and his dwarf um so yeah uh, crystal a when i agree it's more like a tyrian kind of dwarf than a gimli kind of dwarf uh dwarves are not meant to be a, a separate race certainly not like tolkien's dwarves in that sense um they do seem to be sort of aberrations. One thing I will say, more broadly speaking, um, we do tend to... I, I, it's almost like dwarves and giants. So you got like people, like regular people, and then you've got dwarves and you've got giants. And there's this kind of spectrum, right? And dwarves and giants tend to both of them be morally corrupt, Um, They both tend to be sort of monstrous, usually, Um, though not monstrous in the same kinds of ways. Uh, uh, Giants are likely to be violent and dumb, whereas dwarfs are likely to be um, uh, sort of mean and cunning. Uh, And... But anyway, they're usually, more often than not, they're villains and uh, sort of untrustworthy. And um, if anything, honestly, what they kind of remind me of uh, is uh, the White Witch's Dwarf in The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's, um, yeah, no, I, Sakaya, there's no real clear sense of them being really any kind of a people um or even them being a people in any kind of ethnic sense uh they're i don't know like where do giants come from you know there's no giant land there's no giant lineage they just like they're just giants in the land right and there are dwarfs in the land apparently i will say that maoris um maoris dwarves seem to be much more neutral they don't like <clears throat> they don't seem to me to be, again, traditionally, that's like they're some kind of twisted version of humanity in normal medieval literature. That's what we, mo- just like giants are, except different, right? Differently. Um, but again, this sort of, uh, 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 yeah, like twisted or, or, you know, they're like stunted people as opposed to, uh, uh, sort of, out you know out of control people notice remember the the giant of mont saint michel in the lucius of rome section the you know baby eating uh queen raping giant right um is uh, a a a pretty good example of a medieval giant right like notice how all of his like mo- he's very monstrous all of his appetites are like human appetites but like monstrous and gigantic, right? Um, it, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about sort of like the uh, the, the twisted moral stature, uh, though twisted in different directions, of dwarves and giants in most medieval literature. What Maori doing with dwarves, I mean, it'd be interesting for us to continue to watch out for that, actually. You know, maybe we can... Um, uh, make some observations continue to make some observations as we go through here um notice this dwarf seems to he's just uh he's just a messenger right he's just the one whom uh sir Segu- seguardes his wife whose name i don't think we ever learn uh is uh sending as her messenger right so um anyway that's um uh my unsatisfactory answer to that question but um Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Stephen, um, Stephen covers remembering Goliath, and I agree that concept of gigantism is much more like how giants tend to be treated. It's not like they're a separate race of people, like there are giants in the northern hills and sometimes they come wandering down here like the trolls in The Hobbit. Right. It's not like that. It's more like Goliath. Right. And there were like, you know, and Goliath is not alone. Right. I mean, there's uh, you know, there are other places in the Old Testament that kind of give you the sense that there was something a little funky in the genetic pool over in Philistia. Right. Because he's not the only Philistine giant. And there were other Philistine giants, one of whom had six fingers on each hand. And you're like, okay, there's a there's. There's something chromosomal going on over there in Philistia, right? But th- that sense of like Goliath is just like a huge guy, right? Who is a Philistine? He just like among the Philistines. One of them was born a giant, right? Um, it just kind of happens, uh, and that seems to be that um, they're not unhuman. They're not. They're not treated like a different race. The dwarves aren't treated like different a different race, right? Um, they are different, but not separate in that way. Um. Brienne is asking, hence why we usually get a singular giant instead of groups. Yeah, sometimes there will be multiples, but only in unusual circumstances, and usually uh when we're dealing with a, a sorceress, actually. Like you remember, there was Lancelot in the tale in the Book of Sir Lancelot was facing this like row of like multiple giants, right, defending this one castle. But they had been like assembled by a sorceress who was testing him. Um uh but yeah, you you won't find I can't think of a single example in medieval literature of like, and then we came upon a giant village, right? Where like the independent, you know, giant culture is, you know, being but like, that doesn't really happen. In um, Josiah, I agree. Their desires and vices are human vices, not fairy. Uh, exaggerated. Both the dwarfish vices and the giantish vices are sort of exaggerated versions of human vice. Um, but yes, human vice, they're, they're, not, they're not really other in that sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep, yep. Okay, sorry, but great question. And let's keep an eye on that. Like, I, 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 I hadn't ever really noticed much. About how, I mean, again, you see, so you read enough medieval literature and you get used to giants and dwarfs popping up. Uh, so giants and dwarfs kind of pop up in this story, sort of like they do in most other stories. But I'd never really noticed before this trend towards uh, good dwarfs, or at least kind of neutral dwarves. Dwarves that don't aren't uh, uh, treated sort of like uh, freaks, essentially. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll see what else we see, and uh, keep your eye out for dwarfs. Okay. Um, so he's gonna. Uh, he's gonna. He's gonna go. So all right. So a couple things here. As I say in my subtitle, Sir Lancelot, Tristram is not right. Uh, uh, Sir Tristram did not take the hint from La Belle Isode when she was like, "I won't marry anybody without your permission," right? And he he didn't pick up on that. It seems, or opted out of that. But this doesn't mean, uh, apparently, that he has made some kind of Sir Sir Lancelot-ish vow of chastity, right? Where Sir Lancelot's like, I'm not going to get married because I couldn't be a good husband and still be a professional knight. And I'm, uh, you know, to like pursue my knightly career. And, uh, you know, uh, loving somebody paramours is a really bad idea and I would never, ever do that. Sir Tristram obviously has no such compunctions, right? Here is uh, Sir Tristram. Now, keep in mind, um, this might sound really weird to us, this whole situation, like where the two of them are rivals for somebody else's wife might seem a little uh, 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 bizarre. From a courtly love standpoint, this is totally normal, right? Um, In fact, this situation is kind of uh, an interesting one from a technical courtly love standpoint it's it's almost like a a sort of i could imagine i've referred to andreas Capuans many times the art of courtly love um i could imagine a a scenario in andreas capuans andreas loves to pose these sort of courtly love scenarios like how should it go if what if this happens and this happens then like you know uh how 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 should it work out according to the code of courtly love um so you could see that right okay so here you've got this lady right who's married to this knight named sir seguarides and two men are vying for her love right one is a king and the other is the king's nephew. So the king, the one guy outranks the other guy, but the other guy is the more accomplished knight. Right. So which one should she take? Is it better for her to take King Mark because he's the bigger catch politically, you know, in his position or Tristram because he's uh, uh, the, you know, proven knight of prowess. Right. So it's again, it's almost reads like this sort of theo, uh, theoretical, um, uh, you know, question. Right. Uh, Especially from Sir Siguardi's wife's perspective. But the one thing that everybody in the courtly love tradition would agree upon, that the one man whom she should not be paying attention to is her husband. Right. Because that's totally irrelevant to the love situation. And the fact that she's married to somebody is obviously no real impediment uh, to her being loved uh, by King Mark and Sir Tristram. Nor if they were married to other people, would it be at all. Weird for them to be not only in love with her, but vying with each other for the love of her. It's the kind of thing that happens. Now, it's a little shocking, perhaps. I always find it a little bit shocking, because Tristram and he's old, right? You're ready for the Tristram and his old story. And now they've just met, and she's like, ah, I shall wait for seven years. And he goes, he's like, okay, honey, I'm going back home now. And then he immediately hops into bed with some other dude's wife, right? And it's like, okay, Sir Tristram, not exactly the paragon of love, uh, at least not as far as is old is concerned. Um, it started off right. Sounded like we were rolling. We had the rivalry with Palomides and everything. You got to think that somewhere, Sir Palamides is like, "See, Is old. Look, right. You know, <laughs> you chose that loser, and here I am, still pining faithfully for you, right?" Um. Okay, so he's supposed to come, and he's supposed to bring his armor. Now, uh, okay, so he fights somebody on the way, right? He runs into somebody else and he, 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 he gets attacked by Mark, right? So he, him and Mark fight and Mark wounds him in the chest. And therewithal, Sir Tristramas rode forth sore wounded to the laddie and found her abiding him at a postern. And there she welcomed him fire and either housed other in armis. And so she let put up his horse in the best wise, and thon she unarmed him. And so they supped leekly and went to bed with great joy and pleasance. And so in his raging, (laughs) no commentary on that word. And so in his raging, he took no keep of his grieve wound that King Mark had given him and so sir has bled both the oversheet and the nether sheet and the p- and the pillows and the head sheet so sir tristram has gotten his blood everywhere right so uh he was focusing on business and ignoring manfully ignoring his wound right so here's tristram bleeding from a flesh wound on his chest, right? And staining the marriage bed of Sir Seguarides, which is where he is enjoying his assignation with his lady, staining the sheets with blood. And notice the coverage here, right? The upper sheet, the over sheet, the nether sheet, the pillows and the head sheet, right? The pillowcases, right? Everything, everything is, is covered in blood. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, um, remember this scene, this will be important later, um, but notice the image that we get here. And I, you know, I, my subtitle for this was a defiled marriage bed. And I can't help but think that that's deliberate, right? Um, uh, Those of you who know the New Testament will remember the verse that I'm thinking of, right? And the marriage bed is undefiled. This marriage bed is defiled, right? This is, I've said that it's no big deal. Right to love somebody else's wife. In fact, that's how you're supposed to do it uh, in the courtly love tradition. This scene does not inspire me with confidence, right? One of the things, you know, this tension between the quite uh, clear moral situation and the courtly love tradition, right? The courtly love tradition is pointedly, flamboyantly, um, uh, 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 flying in the face of traditional Christian morality, right? Not just flying in the face of it, deliberately turning it on its head. Um, and that, that's, again, it's part of the game. It's part of the fun of the courtly love tradition is to take the Christian moral sanctions and not just ignore them, but reverse them, right? So that loving your husband becomes what's wrong, right? And committing adultery is virtuous love, right? Uh, That's, again, that's the game of courtly love, but there's that tension, right? Clearly there's that tension. And you see in a lot of, you know, there are many, many stories in which people don't play the game, especially husbands quite often, right? Of the ladies in question uh, don't in fact... Uh, play along with this. So one question which is often uh, challenging uh, in medieval love stories is trying to figure like so where is this story situated in that you know in that struggle between the sort of at least half joking if not entirely joking uh, sort of anti-morality of courtly love and traditional morality like how disturbed? are we supposed to be? There are some where I think we're supposed to be very disturbed uh, by it, Um, uh, such as uh, uh, Jean de Mon's much larger second half of the Romance of the Rose, for instance, one of the most famous works of courtly love uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, And there are others who I think are sort of more concerned. Remember, we've already gotten Lancelot and his virtues, right? So I, given what we saw from Lancelot, I think we have reason to be skeptical of this kind of carrying on, right? We can already play the what would Lancelot say game, right? And Lancelot would not do this. Lancelot wouldn't do this. And so when we see the marriage bed of this woman covered in blood, so she has taken this knight who is not her husband to her bed, and she ends up her body and her bed completely stained with his blood with blood right Um, you know the whole marriage bed is now filthy with his blood that's not a good look right that um, is uh, I think um, I feel fairly confident in saying we're supposed to find this sort of uh, dubious right um. Yeah. So Brian asks, "Is there moral judgment being passed on Tristram for taking advantage of the assignation?" Yeah. I. I. It's. Well. Well. In a sense, it's kind of. Uh, it's kind of gentle. Thank you, Aowen. uh Crystal Aowen looked it up. Yeah. Uh, Hebrews thirteen four. I couldn't remember the citation, but yes. Uh, marriage. Uh, that's, the, that's the the marriage bed is undefiled verse. Um. Uh. Anyway, so. So, yes, I do think, um, you know, Tristram noticing how attractive she is and being like, heck, yeah, I'm into this. Right. Uh, I think that this is an indictment uh, of uh, of of Tristram here. Um, Yeah, Mike, uh, that's well, uh, uh, well recalled, of course. What should we be thinking of when we're thinking of bloody sheets what do we associate bloody sheets with in the Middle Ages? Bloody sheets, kind of a big deal, actually, in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Yeah. Marriage and virginity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, It was not uncommon for marriage sheets to be displayed, like the blood on marriage sheets to be displayed as a sort of affirmation of the virginity of uh, the woman when they were married. So it's it's kind of a big deal, right? So she's not a virgin. She's married, right? Um, but to have the bloody sheets, I know that from a modern perspective, you might not think of bloody sheets as a symbol of purity, but it was, right? Like that's the association we have with bloody sheets. When we see bloody sheets, we're thinking of chastity, right the uh, purity in marriage um and this is that obviously turned on its head right so uh the um the adulterous uh relationship here is gives us bloody sheets which are very much more thoroughly bloody uh than is normal right uh and i it's one of the things I think you know when he doesn't say it doesn't just say there was blood on the sheets. He's like, no, 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 like, don't get me wrong, right? Oversheet, nether sheet, pillows, head sheet, blood everywhere, right? Uh, Raging, (laughs) remember, that word on which I am not going to comment further. Uh, uh, So, yeah, uh, it's a bad look. It's a bad look, and Tristram looks bad. There's no two ways about this. Even if we are willing to be okay, with him get it being over is old right and just moving on to sir segwardy's wife if that doesn't bother us and we have less direct reason to feel sure that that should bother us um the narrator doesn't seem bothered by it right but nevertheless this is i think legitimately questionable um But wait, there's more. And within a while, there come on before that warned here that her lord, Sir Segwarides was near hand within a bowdracht. OK, maybe, you know, have somebody look out a little further away than that. So she ma'ed Sir Tristramas to arise. And so he armed him and took his horse and so departed. So by then was Sir Segwarides her lord, come. And when he found his bed troubled and broken. He went near and looked by candlelight. Now the broken bed just means I don't think that actually I don't think they actually broke the bed. I mean there was ra- it is raging and then there's raging, right? Um, uh, his bed troubled and broken means like he could, it's not it's not made, right? Like st- something's been happening in the bed, right? Is what he's noticing when he comes in, uh, and he looked by candlelight and saw that there had lain a wounded knicht. Ah, false traitorous, he sighed. Why hast thou betrayed me? And therewithal he swang out a sword and sighed. But if thou tell me all who hath been here, now shalt thou die. All right. So, um, yeah, uh, exactly, Brian. One of the things that is the obvious consequence of the bloody bed, apart from its symbolic significance, is that, uh, it's it it's a giveaway right um sir Seguire, it cannot be hidden uh it is manifest evidence of what has happened i agree creating the bed frame being broken would be funnier no question uh that would be increased comic value and hey you know like raging what can i say uh it's quite possible um uh i just don't think that's the inescapable interpretation of it uh we could go that direction if you choose to. And I agree for comic value, it's better, but okay. So he, he's going to kill her. Not period, right? He's not just going to kill her. He has caught her functionally in the act of adultery, right? Not exactly. I mean, he's not caught them, uh, you know, in flagrante, but you know, he has some pretty good evidence, uh, that his wife has committed adultery, but he's going to spare her, on condition that she tells him who it was. Okay. He chases after him, and of course Tristram beats him, right? Uh, And it's kind of unresolved. Uh, I mean, apart from Tristram apparently getting away with it, right? And everything's fine. Okay. Then a little bit later. (laughs) Than hit befell upon a die that the good kniekt Sir Bleobaristiganus, "'Brother unto Sir de Ganis, and nigh cousin unto the good knight Sir Launcelot de Lac, "'so this Sir Bleobarus come unto the court of King Mark, "'and there he asked King Mark to give him a bone. "'What gift that I will ask in this court?' "'So he asks him, like, "'Rash vow, promise me anything I ask for. "'This is a fun game that wandering knights like to play with kings. "'When the king heard him ask, so he marvelled of his asking.' but because he was a connect of the round table and of great renown, King Mark granted him his whole asking. So, King Mark maybe wouldn't do this normally, right? But he's surprised that this famous knight is doing this. I mean, Sir Bleaburus, not only a knight of the round table, but nigh kin of Sir Lancelot de Lake. And as we can see, uh, as becomes clear throughout this whole Tristram story, right? Those French knights you know, the knights of Sir Lancelot's kin, all of them have a very high reputation, right? Uh, Sir Bleobarus and Sir Blamor are just Lancelot's cousins, uh, but still, I mean, you know, they're they're uh, uh, they're close family, and they all have a really high reputation. Um, Carita, I agree. Sir Bleobarus is one of my favorite names uh, 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 for for knights. It's pretty classic, I agree. Um, so, anyway, okay. Uh, So, knowing who he is, right, trusting who he is, and not possibly wanting to insult somebody, both with this much personal renown and with his connections, right, both to King Arthur and Sir Lancelot, King Mark's like, "Uh, okay, I'll give you whatever you ask. Um, Thun sighed Sir Bleobarus, I will have the firest laddie in your court that me list to choose. "'I may not say nay,' said Mark. "'Now chose here at your adventure.' "'And so Sir Bleoberis did choose Sir Seguarides's wife "'and took her by the hand, and so went his way with her.' "'Look, he noticed she was attractive too. "'And so he took his horse, and Maud set her behind his squire "'and rode upon his wife.'" All right, so what's Sir Bleoberis up to here, right? What makes you as a famous knight come into a random court in Cornwall and be like, hey, I'm near the Cornish court. I know what I'll do. I'll go and get myself a lady. Right. So I'm going to go to the king and make him promise to give me anything I want. I'm going to be like, hey, can I take the hottest lady in the court for myself? Uh, And he'll be like, "Okay," because I promised you. Right. And then I'm going to walk off and I'm like, hey, free lady. Right. Like, why does he do this exactly? Um, And he's making trouble right so is Sir Blaoboros' plan to get himself a lady like is this, is this in like the, the Sir Blaoboros like how to pick up chicks you know strategy book is that what's happening here is this like how Sir Blaoboros finds a date right and my answer to that is no no I don't think that that's this is how Sir Blaoboros gets dates um why would he do this what do you think? Whatever, we're not told exactly why, but um, why, uh, why do you think he would do this? What's, the, what's his goal? Why come into the court and say, I'm going to take away the fairest lady in the entire court? Just, like, for fun. Yeah, Sakaya. exactly. This is a challenge, right? He is making trouble on purpose. Um, this is an indirect way, an indirect but a very effective way, of testing himself against the best knights that this court has to offer. Because it's a pretty safe bet, right, that the most beautiful lady in the court is going to be connected with one of the most powerful knights in the court, right? I mean, that's kind of a given, you know, from a courtly love standpoint. So, um, and and of course, is true, right? Sir Tristram is her lover, and Sir Zeguardi is her husband, and King Mark is into her too. So he's got it, right? Uh, He's, uh, 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 Sir Blaobaris has hit the nail on the head here, right? Um, So he takes her off expecting to be pursued. The whole goal, really. So, I mean, it would be weird. <laughs> I know I know what you're going to say. You're going to be like, and this isn't weird, right? But it would be weird for him to come into the court and just be like, I'm itching to fight y'all, right? Like, I'm just going to like, uh, hey, you over there, come over here and fight me, right? I mean, that that's weird. That's aggressive, right? You know, No, what you do is you create a situation where you'd lead them to challenge you, right? That's cool. That I think is clearly what Sir Bleoberis is doing. It's very clear from the later conversations that happen. Sir Bleoberis is not interested in the lady, right? He's not. He's not going to take her to himself, um, even when in the end he kind of ends up with her. He like sends her back to her husband, right? He 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 doesn't. He's not interested in the lady. Again, it's not about getting a date. It's about provoking a response, um, and. By the way that he has framed this, he has created a situation uh, where he is going to get to be challenged by the greatest knight or knights in the entire court so that he can build his own worship, right? Hey, I uh, I took out the best that uh, Cornwall had to offer. Um, yeah, so... Um, yeah, well, see, Karina, you could provoke them to attack you by insulting them or something. But see, that's rude, right? That's unnightly behavior for Sir Whereas just coming in and saying, "Hey, I'm going to claim the greatest lady in this court as my prize." That's okay, right? I mean, notice he's not he's not threatening to do anything horribly inappropriate with her, right? He's like, "I'm going to become her champion." right? Uh, like, it's kind of a one-sided uh, arrangement, admittedly, right? Um, but I'm going to take it, and she's going to become my lady, and I'm going to ride around with my... Yeah, I mean, you remember how every... Remember Sir Gawain and Sir Marholt and Sir Owain, right? When they're like, my damsel! What happened to my damsel? Right? You you, you get assigned a damsel, and then you defend her. Um, you know, unless you're Gawain, in which she ditches you, because she thinks you're a loser, but... Uh, but that, that's kind of the situation that Sir Bleoburus is creating here, right? Um so that now he has the opportunity and the right, in a sense, to defend her because she was given to him, right? She was put under his protection. Uh, She was put into his custody by King Mark, right? So there you go. That's legit now, right? So now if one of the knights wants to defend her, right, wants to keep her from being carried off by Sir Bleoberis, now he's got to be the aggressor, and Sir Bleoberis is like, I must defend the lady from this, like, obviously hostile knight who's coming to attack me. So it's kind of clever, way more delicate than insulting his mom, way more um, uh, way more de- you know, it puts him in the right, you see. Again, if he just comes in and he's like, you, I challenge you to a fight because I feel like fighting you, again, then he's the jerk, right? Now, no way, man. He's he, He's in the right now. Uh, so that's interesting. Now good. James and Zachary both are thinking, James Stevens and Zach Komen are both thinking that like not like isn't this kind of small potatoes? Like is there any worship in besting a Cornish knight? Uh, did any good thing ever come out of Cornwall? Um yeah, exactly. So you could say in that sense, Sir Bleaborus is kind of slumming here. Or you could also say that the reputation of the uh of the Cornish court is already rising since Tristram has arrived, right? Um, Honestly, I kind of suspect that it's Tristram that he's trying to provoke here. Um, But, yeah, anyway, so, uh, but again, this is not the greatest of exploits by Sir Leobaris, because it is Cornwall, after all, right? And everybody knows what Cornish, uh, uh, what Cornish uh, knights are like, Yeah. Um Okay But uh, let's keep going. I keep interrupting my reading here tonight. Uh okay oh he set her behind his squire. Right, okay. Juan Sir Seguarides had her tell that this ladi was gone with a Kenicht of King Arthur's court. So this is her husband, mind, right? Um then he armed him and rode after that Kanique to rescue his ladi. Oh this is charming, right? He's gonna rescue his own wife. Right, that's nice. So once Sir Leobarus was gone with this laddie, King Mark and all the court was wroth that she was had away. Tristram is there, right? Tristram is there in the court while this is happening. Fawn were there certain laddies that knew that there was great love between Sir Tristramus and her. It's like an open secret in the court, right? And also, that laddie loved Sir Tristramus above and all conictus. They know there's a mutual thing going on. Right, the ladies know, the ladies always know, right? The ladies know that there's an open there's a there's a, a reciprocal love relationship between Tristram and Sir Seguardis's wife. Then there was on Ladi that rebuked Sir Tristramas in the horriblest wise, and called him coward Knicht, that he walled for sham of his Knichthood, so see to, to see a Ladi so shamfully talking away from his un, fro his uncle's court. But she meant that either of him loved other with entire heart. But Sir Tristramus answered her thus. So, okay, so she's speaking in code, right? So she was, she won't say, hey, you know, you two are lovers. You're supposed to defend her. That's part of the love gig, you know? She can't say that openly because that would be a breach of secrecy and breach of secrecy is a big deal uh, in the courtly love tradition, right? So all the ladies are in the know, but they can't openly talk about it. So she's like, it was shameful to see a lady so shamefully taken away from your, from your uncle's court, right? You shouldn't have allowed that on principle, Sir Tristram. By which she means, dude, she's your lady. That was horrible. What's wrong with you? Tristram responds, Fair lady, it is not my part to have a do in such matters while her lord and husband is present here. And if so be that her lord had not been here in this in this uh, in in this uh, court, I think it's a typo. This court. Uh, then for the worship of this court, per aventure, I won't have been her champion. And if so be, Sir Segwarides, speed not well, it may happen that I will speak with that good knight, or ever he pass far fro this country. Tristram's response, decoded, is Dude, I was being tactful. Right. Her husband is here. Had I stepped in and been like, I shall go rescue her. No, 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 Mr. Seguerides. Right. You stay here. I'm going off and rescuing your wife. That would have been tactless. Right. And even could potentially be viewed as a breach of secrecy. Right. Um, his openly avowing that it was his place to um, to rescue her, whereas openly, overtly, it's her husband's place to defend her, right. Um, so he Tristram is trying to get himself off, right? He's like, I'm in an awkward place, but he's like, if he doesn't speed, and by the way, that's an important, uh, that's an important word, right? To speed has nothing to do with traveling quickly, right? Uh, to speed it just means to succeed, right? Uh, should he not speed well, uh, meaning should things not work out well for him, right? Um, then, um, uh, then, uh. Then, then I'll definitely go, right? But I have to give him first crack at it because he's her husband, and so outwardly, he has the right, not me, right? Um, exactly, The Translation, if he gets his butt kicked, then I'll go after her myself. And notice that he's expecting that, right? Um, it may happen that I will speak with that good knight, or ever he pass far through this country, right? Tristram's like, I don't think Sir Blaobras is going to get out of Cornwall before I meet with him, right? it's going to happen. Um, and so of course that's a little bit of an insult to Sir Seguarides, but not a huge insult because Sir Blaobaris is kin of Lancelot, right? I mean, he's a great knight. So, um, I don't know if he's top 10, but he's probably top 20 easily, Sir Blaobaris. So, um, maybe even top 10, maybe. Um, so, you know, no, uh, no, no, uh, no diss to, uh, uh Sir Seguarides. Now, uh, uh, likely a bot on Twitch is wondering if, uh, there's any, uh, uh, implication that he wants to let the husband attack so that maybe, uh, knowing that the husband is almost certain to die, uh, that if, uh, uh, that, that he'll like get killed or something and clear the way, uh, for him. But that assumes, likely about that he wants to marry her, right? I mean, if his interest were to marry Sir Seguardes' wife, then yeah, it's in his benefit to, uh, I, it, uh, enable, you know, to, to allow <laughs> Sir Segwarides to, uh, ex- encounter as much danger as possible. Right. But I, there's no, I don't see any reason at all to think that Tristram is the slightest bit interested in marriage with Sir Seguerides' wife. Um, I think, uh, his, uh, he has... Uh, achieved the consummation of his desire with Sir Siguardi's his wife. I think uh, he's happy with their relationship and it doesn't, like, you, there's why get rid of the husband, right? He's no more than a brief inconvenience <clears throat> because, of course, you know, Sir Trisham's already dealt with that inconvenience. I mean, they've already fought, uh, you know, with the after the whole bloody sheet incident. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Curtis says, our boy isn't into the whole commitment thing. You know, yeah, Uh, there seems to be a little bit of that, or at least this is as much commitment as he's interested in. So Tristram feels like he's playing this smart and he's defending himself, even on a courtly love uh, uh, footing, right, with the ladies of the court. You know, he's like, no, 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 hang on. I'm innocent here, right? I'm I'm playing this right. It's not that I'm not going to defend her, but I got to. The, for for show, let the husband go first, and then I'm gonna find Don't worry, don't worry, I got this. I got this, right? It's not it's not anything bad, he says. Okay. And therewithal anon, Sir Dramas, asked them from whence they come, and whither they won't. So this is he's meets these other you know, the the other two knights, right? Uh Sir Sagramore and Sir Uh Dodinas, isn't it? That he meets um And uh, their Arthur's uh, uh, knights, uh, while he's on the way to fight Sir Blaobarus. From whence they come, and whether they wold, and what they dud in those marches. So Sir Sagramor looked upon Sir Tristramas, and had scorn of his wordes, and said to him again, Sir, be ye a knight of Cornwall." Whereby ask you, askest you, said Sir Tristramas. For it is seldom sane, sighed Sir Sagramor, that ye Cornish knictes been valiant men in armes. For within these twa ures, there are met with us one of you Cornish knictes, and great wordes he spake, and anon with little meeked he was laid to the earth. And as I true, sighed Sir Sagramore, that ye wold have the same hansel, I am going to give you the same present that I gave to that other guy. Right? Fire lordes, sighed Sir Tristramus hit my so hap that I may better withstand you than he did. And whether ye wull or nil, I will have ado with you, because he was my cousin that ye beat. And therefore, here, do your best, and wit you well. But if ye quit you, the better here upon this ground. On knickt of Cornwall shall beat you both. Tristram's an underdog, right? Um, And the fact that he comes from a group of knights which are scorned, is an interesting thing for him, right? On the one hand, you know, he's kind of tainted with being a knight of Cornwall. Now, he is the greatest Cornish, and we talked about this some before. Um, So it's kind of interesting that he sort of emerges from Cornwall and and that, you know, and and it becomes a sort of irony that one of the greatest of all knights uh, in all of history is a Cornish knight, right? Um, But he's kind of fighting this reputation, from the beginning, as we see. And, of course, he's going to beat Sir Sagramor and Sir Donanos in their opinion. Not of Cornish knights in general, but of Tristram in particular, is going to change. Alright, um, so Sir Bleobarus, he finally meets with Sir Bleobarus, who has this opinion. In good faith, said Sir Bleobarus, as for me, I would be loath to fict with you, but sithen ye follow me here, to have this laddie, I shall proffer you kindness and courtesy right here upon this ground, this laddie shall be set betwixt us both, and who that wall go unto and that she will go unto of you and me, let him have her in peace. I will well said Sir Tristramus, for as I deem she will leave you and come to me. ye, ye shall prave anon, said Sir Bleoberus, so one she was set betwixt them she said these wordes unto Sir Tristramas. we you do well, Sir Tristramas de Leonès, that but lot thou wast the man in all the world that I most loved and trusted. And I went, ye had loved me again, above all laddies. But when thou sawst this knict, lead me away, thou madest no cheer to rescue me, but sufferedst my lord Sir Seguarides to ride after me. But until that time I went, ye had loved me, and therefore now I forsake thee, and never to love thee more. And therewithal she went unto Sir Bleoberis. When Sir Tristramis saw her do so, he was wonderly wroth with that laddie, and a shamed to come to the court. But Sir Bleoberis said unto Sir Tristramis, ye are in the blam, for I here I hire by this laddie's word that she trusted you above an all earthly knechtis, and as she saith, ye have deceived her. Therefore, wit you well, there may no man hold. There may no man hold that wall away, and rather than ye should hurtily be displeased with me, I wold ye had her, and she wold abide with you. Sir Blaobaris is in an uncomfortable position. He kind of wanted her to choose Tristram, right? Notice he, was, he thought that he had come up with a brilliant solution that was going to get everybody out of awkwardness. He does not want to do battle to the uttermost with Tristram. Not only because he's now pretty sure that Tristram is going to kick his butt, right? And he doesn't really want to die. This was kind of a lark anyway from the beginning, right? Um, but uh, And he certainly doesn't want to die in this quarrel. But he can't just give her up. If he just gives her up, he would lose worship. But if so, so he's like, ah, perfect solution, right? I'll let her choose. She'll choose to go with Tristram. He'll be happy. I'll be happy. We don't have to fight to the death. Everybody wins, right? And then she's like, no, I'm not going to go with him. He's a jerk, right? I thought he loved me, but he lied because he didn't come after me. I choose you, Sir Pleiobarus. And he's like, oh, crap. (laughs) Now I'm in trouble, right? Because now Sir Tristram's going to have to come back. And notice Sir Tristram is ashamed. He's ashamed to come back to to the court because he's going to go back to the court without the lady, which is going to lead everybody to the logical conclusion that he lost. Right. That he attempted to get her back and failed. Right. So, oh, man, serious losing face uh, for Sir Tristram here. Notice that. um, Yeah. And David, I agree. The rejection of Tristram by the lady is yet another surprise in this rather surprising episode. Right. Um, Notice she's not having any of it. And this is important. Again, this will be important. The bloody bed will be important later, that whole situation. This situation will be important later too, right? All of these situations, the like, do you go and rescue your beloved if she is taken, right? How do you do that? What are the responsibilities for that? What are the implications of that? Notice Tristram was like, hang on, if I do that, if I push her husband aside and like, no, she is mine to go pursue, then he's all but openly accusing her of adultery in front of the whole court, right? So he's like, I was trying to be tactful. And she's like, tact, forget it. You're a jerk, right? You lied to me. She is not taking his tact story, right? Um, Deceived is the word that Bleaburus uses. Bleaburus doesn't know the whole story, right? So he's like, uh, she apparently trusted in you and I guess you failed her trust, right? You should have come after her, right? Um, yeah, now, Tarlonio, I think that you're right. Everyone does not seem to be on the same page about the rules for courtly love here. I think that that's a true thing that we see, but here's one of the take-home stories here. What would Sir Lancelot say? Sir Lancelot would say, Sir Tristram, if you weren't sleeping with her, there wouldn't be a problem here. Right. The only problem is that you have taken her as your lover, paramours. So if 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 they were sleeping together, if he just admire if they do just were doing the nice, non-sexual love, pure love that Guinevere and Lancelot are doing, then he could be your champion and there wouldn't be any problem. Right. It's the fact that Tristram is morally compromised by the adultery that makes it sketchy for him to step forward and be like, Okay, Sir Segwarides. No, no, no. I will go. Right, Lancelot can do that, with, when it comes to Guinevere. Right, Tristram can't do that with Sir Segwarides' wife because he is in fact committing adultery with her. And once he crosses that line, he compromises his own position and puts him. He 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 created this situation. Right, he made this bloody bed and now he has to lie in it and he ends up being shamed as a consequence of it. Again, keep this in mind. This will become relevant not just later in the Sir Lancelot story, the story of Sir Lancelot and Guinevere. It will become relevant again in the Tristan and Isolde story. Let's keep moving. So while this was done, King Mark cast all the wires that he meeked to destroy Sir Tristramas. Bad king. Bad, bad king, King Mark, right? Not only is he not appreciative of and cherishing and promoting the honor and worship of his, of the crown jewel of the, cor- of the court of Cornwall, right? He's actually plotting to destroy Tristram. He wants Tristram dead because he's, he's, he's envious of Tristram. Okay, so he has a new scheme to, to get him killed then imagined in himself to send Sir Tristramus into Ireland for La belle ode. For Sir Tristramus had so prized here for her beauty and her goodness that King Mark said he would wed her. Whereupon he pried Sir Tristramus to talk his way into Ireland for him on message. And all this was done to the intent to slay Sir Tristramus. Notice Maury is not allowing any... Uncertainty about that point, right? Why does King Mark want to marry La Zode? It is a mechanism for destroying Tristram. That's the whole. He doesn't want to marry Isolde. I mean, she sounds cute, right? But that's not the point. Uh, he, it's, it's all a plot. It's a, it's, it's a plot to get him killed. That's the point. Notwithstanding. He wold not refuse the message, that is, Tristram wouldn't refuse it, for no downger no other peril, that meeked fall, for the pleasure of his uncle. So to go he mad him ready, in the most goodliest wise, that meeked be devised, for he took with him the most goodliest canictes, that he meeked find in the court, and they were a ride after the guise that was used in that time, to the most goodliest manner." Uh, So what what were the people like when they went? They were goodly. No, they were goodliest, right? I love the word goodliest. Uh, But anyway, okay. So, so yeah. So we're. uh, Um. He's fine, right? Um, He is ready to go into Ireland. Uh, He is undaunted by the danger or the peril, and he's going to go for the pleasure of his uncle. Now, what is so. Mark's motivation is made perfectly plain by Mowry, right? Tristram's motivation is less clear, right? All we're told is for the pleasure of his uncle. To please his uncle? Is he. So is the animosity one sided? Remember the parallel that we got, we were talking about last week, right? At the beginning of their relationship, King Mark and Tristram were Saul and David. Right, that was the parallel that we got in the whole Truage situation. Right with Marholt. Marholt was Goliath, though an unusually uh, well dressed and well behaved Goliath, and uh, Tristram was David, and Mark was King Saul. Those of you who know the story will remember that the animosity between King Saul and David, which continues thereafter and is born of Mark's envy of the young hero whose reputation so exceeds his own. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands as they sing in the streets of Jerusalem. Um, that envy is one-sided envy and the animosity is totally one-sided, Right. And David remains faithful to Saul, even though, even after, long after, Saul is attempting to kill him, right, and taking active uh, steps in order to get him killed. Again, notice the parallel here. Um, King Mark says that, or King Mark, in the Bible, um, Saul, King Saul says to David, like, he can marry, David can marry Saul's daughter if he brings him, uh, what is it, a hundred? or a thousand, a hundred, I think, a hundred foreskins of uh, Philistines. In other words, like, you know, like go out and kill a hundred of their warriors. And he's obviously hoping that at least one of them is going to manage to kill David, right? Surely David won't be able to overcome a hundred of them, uh, right? In order to to sort of prove himself here. Um, So he sends him off, you know, like a father-in-law sometimes does, right? Send off the potential uh, son-in-law, uh something that will hopefully get him killed in order to win your daughter. Um that's not exactly the dynamic here. We don't have a father-daughter situation here, but again, like the King Saul figure sends off the, the the young David figure with the in order to do to do something challenging in the hope that he's gonna end up getting killed. Okay. But Tristram seems to if we're understanding this if I'm understanding this properly, he seems to be faithful to mark despite the fact that mark is a terrible jerk who's actively trying to get him killed now right Like, uh, okay my uncle says i should go so i'm gonna faithfully go even though i'm being set up um so uh yeah now katriana we're not given a great reason great reasons for why mark wants to get Tr- tristram killed just envy Right. Um, Tristram is showing him up instead of taking pride in Tristram and being like, yeah, here he is, the boast of the court of Cornwall. Right. The best thing to come out of Cornwall since. Well, anything, actually, Um, uh, you know, instead of having that attitude uh, and taking pride in Tristram, Mark sees him as a threat. Mark sees him. Mark feels overshadowed by him um, and wants uh, wants him gone. Um, Again, notice the rivalry. On, about Sir Sir, Saguardi's, Sir Saguardi's wife, right? Um, that, that uh, Tristram is one upping him. Mark feels personally threatened, his own worship personally threatened by this. Um, so Kateranno, why does he think sending him to Ireland to get his old will get him killed? Well, remember Tristram was likely to be killed, right He kind of just escaped. Uh, by the sufferance of King Anguishance. Now, it's true that the King of Ireland quite likes him, Tristram, right? But the Queen of Ireland, not so much. So the odds of somebody saying, hey, this is the scumbag who killed Sir Marholt, let's off him fairly high, right? So that seems to be what King Mark is kind of uh, uh, banking on, right? Um and david yes david Erbach is saying this is so so different from other versions of this story that i had heard before uh, yeah uh huh it is very different very different okay so he's going to go over on the way he gets a stroke of luck right by chance uh he runs into um king Anguishens, the king of ireland uh, la belle's old dad Right, And he's in a spot of bother, right he he's in trouble. um so here's the conversation between King Anguishance and Sir Tristram. Ah, gentle Kiiqueked sighed the king unto Sir Tristramus. Now have I great need of you? Never had I so great need of no his help? Remember double negatives are just twice as negative as single negatives, right, so never had I so great need of no his help. Uh, is that's, that's a, it's a double negative showing that that's how, how, how much never he had, uh, not ever been in such great need. Like it's, he's, um, super, super great need, right? Uh, it is a d- double unprecedented levels of need, uh, by King Anguishens. Um, I love double negatives that way. I mean, the, the modern double negatives are fun and they can often be sort of fun. Employed amusingly. Um, But the medieval double negatives are just kind of. I I, I love it. You just pile on more negatives to make it more negative. Uh, Come on. That's charming, right? Anyway, okay. How so, my good lord? sighed Sir Tristramas. I shall tell you, sighed the king. I am a summoned and appealed from my country. For the death of a cnict that was kin unto the good cnict Sir Launcelot, Wherefore, Sir Blamor Daganis, Sir Bleobarus his, his brother, hath appealed me to fict with him other for to find a cnict in my steed. And will I wot, said the king. These that are common of King Banis' blood, as Sir Launcelot and these other, are passing good hard cnictes and hard men for to win in battle as any that I know now living. Sir, said Sir Tristramus, for the good lordship ye showed unto me in Ireland, and for my lad your daughter's sack, La Labelli's old, I will tak the battle for you upon this condition, that ye shall grant me twa things: On is that ye shall swear unto me that ye are in the rict, and ye were never consenting to the knictus' death. Sir, then said Sir Tristramus, when i have done this battle if god give me grass to speed that ye shall give me a reward what thing reasonable that i will ask you so god me help said the king ye shall have whatsoever ye will okay so on two conditions, he's willing to. Now, King Anguishance is in a tough place, right? He's being appealed. That's a legal term, right? He is being assomned, which means he was he's being extradited from Ireland, right? Uh, he's been he he is uh, he was served a summons to come to this court and he's been appealed. He's, that, that's when you're indicted, right? So he's uh, summoned means you're, he's being uh, told to show up, right? Appealed means he's being indicted publicly by Sir Blamor um and accused of murder, right? Of contriving the death of this uh, knight, this, uh, uh, this knight who is was a kin unto Sir Blamor Um So he, King Anguish, has to fight and he doesn't want to do that right um he knows he's gonna uh he's gonna lose sir blamor is uh 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 so yeah he's he's in trouble but notice tristram's two conditions condition number 1 swear to me that you're actually in the right here you 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 didn't actually murder this dude right um if you'll tell so fr- that's important notice tristram doesn't just say like hey man right or wrong i got your back um he will only fight for him if King Anguishance will swear that he was in the right, um, that he didn't kill the guy. And then he also needs to promise that um, he will give him whatever reasonable thing I'll ask. Um, Yeah, Corita, that is unusual, right? Notice this is Tristram explicitly saying, I'm not trying to sucker you into a rash vow here, right? You can feel... Because if I ask something and... You know you don't want to give it. You can tell me it's unreasonable, right? So he's get, when when, uh, when they when they cite and this is the second time this has happened when they say I'll do anything reasonable or I only ask you to give me something reasonable. They're giving the the swearer of the vow and out clause, right? So it's it's fine. Okay, so. Notice the king is not interested in it. He's like, I will give you whatsoever ye will, right? I'll give you anything you want. I don't care if it's reasonable or not. I'll give you anything you want if you pull my bacon out of the fire here. And he does, right? So after the battle. He beats Sir Blamor de Ghanis, and there's that really fun moment where Sir Blamor is insisting on being killed. So they appeal, and and Tristram's like, "I don't want to kill this dude." And you know, the court's like, "We don't really want to see him die either." And Blamor's like, "No, no, no! I totally insist. Kill me." And so they're like, "Sir Bleoberis, surely you can intervene with your brother here." And Sir Blamor is like, "No, I insist that you kill him too, <laughs> right?" And so, anyway, they finally get out of it and manage to force Sir Blamor de Ghanis to accept his life and not die. Um, after all of that drama is over, Tristram goes back to Anguishans. Now it is time, sir, this is all that I will desire that ye will give La Belle old, your doctor, not for myself, but for mine uncle, King Mark, that shall have her to wife, for so have I promised him. Alas, said the king, I had levered then all the land that I have that ye would have wedded here yourself. Right, here's. King Anguishins finally spelling out what La Belle Isolde was implying before, right? Like, hey, you know, you really should marry her yourself. Sir, and I did so, I were shamed forever in this world and false of my promise. Therefore, sighed Sir Tristramus, I require you, hold your promise that ye promised me. For this is my desire, that ye will give me La Belle Isolde to go with me unto Cornwall. For it to be wedded unto King Mark, mine uncle. As for that, King Anguish sighed, ye shall have her with you to do with her what it please you. That is for to say, if that ye list to wed her yourself, that is me leavest. And if ye will give her unto King Mark, your uncle, that is in your choice. Notice what the situation that Maori has created here, right? Maori has created this situation, which looks like Tristram is trapped in tragical and conflicting desires, right? Like, as if he had gotten suckered into a rash vow, where he promised on his worship, you know, to bring, to do what Mark says, and he says, bring me old to be my wife, and he's like, ah... Oh, the one thing I would least like to do, and now I must do it or else I am forever shamed, right? And, but I must fulfill my promise to my uncle. And so despite the fact that I love her and would weary her myself, no, I cannot. I must now be the instrument of my own unhappiness. Well, I mean, the, it writes itself, right? This kind of thing that we can, you know. Okay, fine. That looks like the situation. But notice how far Mallory is going out of his way to, like, emphasize, this is, Tristram is not trapped here. He is not trapped, right? Her father, Labelle's old, own father, is like, no, please marry my daughter. No, no, no. I insist. I really want you to be the one to marry my daughter instead, right? Um. You know... And Tristram's like, no, 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 no. I've promised. I've promised. And he's like, okay. So, and then he even tries to give, to give Tristram an out at the end, right? Where he's like, okay, I will. I'm not even gonna say like, so you can't blame me. Like, I'm not gonna say that I'm giving her to for to Mark, right? Um, I'm gonna. I'm just. I'm gonna give her to you. And you can do with her whatever you want. And notice how he clarifies: It's like, hang on, there are some things you can't do with her. <laughs> right? Like, I'm not giving you carte blanche with my daughter. What I'm saying is, she can. You can marry her. Yourself. You have two options, right? You can you can bring her back to King Mark if you want to, or you can marry her yourself. And that is me, leavist. That's what I would prefer. Right? That is what I most desire. Um. So he he's, he is absolutely uh, 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 crystal clear on what his intentions, what his preference is, right? Tomás says, well, what does she want? Well, Tomás, of course, that doesn't actually matter. You know, let's be real, right? She is being married off by her father. That's how this works. Keep in mind, Tomás, that's the whole root of the courtly love system. Um, Let us not forget one of the ways in which the whole system is set on its head, again, deliberately and playfully by the courtly love system, is that the, woman's, the woman has 100% of the authority. She is the deciding figure. She is the one who must be wooed. And she is the one who chooses whom she loves and under what conditions she loves. The woman has ultimate power and is treated like a monarch. Um, again, that's part of the joke. Um, even the kiss, right? Why do you kiss the lady? Why do you ask for the it's the kiss of fealty that you're giving to her, right? Um, so in the courtly love context, it's all about the woman's choice, all about the woman's choice. Um, in notice remember even with Tristram and Sir his wife, right? She's the one who initiates. you know remember she was the one who sends the dwarf and is like, you know, hey, hot stuff, you know, come to my place while my husband is away, right. He, Tristram, does not suggest that, right? She does. But when it comes to marriage, the men are in charge, right? The father's, it's the father who distributes his daughter in marriage, and the daughter gets absolutely no say in that. Again, that's the system that's being reversed by courtly love. However, however, notice again the situation that Mallory has set up. Um, Tomas, on the one hand, what she wants, as far as her marriage is concerned, is irrelevant, but, legally speaking, but we happen to know what she wants, right? She loves Tristram. Um, her dad is saying, I really wish you would marry my daughter. The daughter is like, Yeah, he's the one I want, right? And Tristram, instead of being like, Well, oh, twist, twist, okay, fine. He's like, No, 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 I insist. I insist that he's old, goes and marries my nasty uncle who's trying to get me killed. Um and uh, I, um, yeah, both David Urbach and Carita are both kind of upset about the fact that he's, he considers breaking this promise and marrying old himself shameful, whereas like the sleeping with somebody else's wife was f- totally fine. Right. Um, yeah, um. David, see, that's exactly, that's the situation that Malway creates. So David Erbach says, can't uh, Anguishance just deny his daughter's hand to Mark and hold out for his preferred suitor to come around? Yeah. Oh, totally. He absolutely has the right to say, heck no, I'm not marrying my daughter to that scumbag King Mark. He could totally say that, especially since he's the king of Ireland. Right. So, I mean, yeah, like for him to deny the request from King Mark would have political consequences, right? But Ireland already conquered Cornwall before he presumably he'd be fine mixing it up again. Right. So he's absolutely in a political position and in a legal position just to be like, Nope, not giving my daughter to that jerk. Right. Could totally do that. But remember, remember the situation that Tristram himself created, right? I will save your life if you give me what I request. And the, the, the gift, the boon, the reward that he chooses. Give me your daughter to marry to King Mark. So Anguishans can't say no without rejecting Tristram, uh, the with the reward for saving his own life. Again, notice how Maori has heaped thing upon thing to show this is Tristram's fault. Right. Again, that phrase that is in your choice. It is in his choice, right? He is completely trapped now, but it is a trap of almost entirely his own contrivance. Even the original promise that he made to Mark to bring back La Belle Isold, He could get out of that on the principle that Mark only did it in order to get him killed, right? You know, his faithfulness to this promise, which was sworn in bad faith on Mark's part, right? But Tristram insists the tragedy is on, right? Um, it is his fault. Karina's, uh, saying that we seem to be learning that he just isn't that into her. Well, Karina, remember I said that before that I think that it seems like she's more into him than he's into her. That's kind of what I'm getting from this too. Honestly. Um, that, uh, you know, he likes her and everything, but I'm not sure he likes her in that way. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they looked like an item originally back when we were fighting Sir Palamedes over there in Ireland. But, um, yeah, it's. Uh, anyway, it's odd. It's odd, but it's all his fault. Again, it's all his fault is the kind of take home message here. All right. And now for another random Tristram and Isolde story element. So, to mock short conclusion... So, we're coming home from Ireland now with Isolde uh, to deliver her to King Mark. To mock short conclusion, La Belle Isolde... La Belle Isolde was... I keep adding the L, because Isolde, of course, is the normal, like the French way. Um, Maori leaves off the L, so I'm trying to be faithful to Maori's spelling, but I misread it almost every time. La belli's especially because there's an L in the previous word. It's like, uh, uh, twice as hard. Sorry. So, to mock short conclusion, La Belle isode was... Ma- Actually, that would be a good synopsis of the entire Sir Tristram and uh, La Bellizode story, right? T- uh, to mock short conclusion. Anyway, <clears throat> all right, I'll come in again. So, <laughs> to mock short conclusion, La Bellizode was mad ready to go with Sir Tristramas. And Dom Brongwine, that's her lady in waiting, remember, went with her for, for her chief gentlewoman with many other. That the... Uh, uh, Right, then the queen, Isodes mother, gaffed on Brangwina unto her to be her gentlewoman. And also she and Gouvernail, that is Brangwine and Gouvernail, had a drink of the queen. And she charged them that where King Mark should wed, that some die, they should give them, that is Mark and Isold, Isode, sorry, um, should give them that drink that King Mark should drink to La Belizod. And Than said the queen, either shall love other dies of their life. So this is a love drink. We have a love potion, which is a gift. That's the wedding gift from the mother-in-law, right? Here's his wedding potion that if the two of them drink together. Now notice this this is uh, a very kind of, a very sort of thoughtful, medieval marriage present. Again, love and marriage, not they don't really go together like a horse and carriage in the Middle Ages. It's just not the way, right? Um, you don't love your wife. Uh, your wife is very unlikely to love you. Again, it's just like it's set up by your parents. Like, you're told, like, this is the, you know, you're supposed to marry this person. There is no reason to think. So this is, if anything, it's kind of a kind gift to her daughter. I'm sending my daughter to marry King Mark, right? Do either of them love either each other? I mean, like, probably not, right? It's probably not going to be a real love situation. Likely to be an unhappy marriage. So, uh... Queen of Ireland, she's got some she I don't know, studied some negromancy. She minored in Negromancy or something. Uh uh, so she she's got some skills. Uh remember there was poison involved, which I think was her, uh before. Um, and she was getting ready to cook up something else to kill Sir Tristram before, back with the whole uh, you know, piece of sword, you know, the sword out of the brain pan uh thing. So anyway, um uh exactly Zachary she majored in 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 forensic science and minored in necromancy clearly um so she whips up a love drink and so again you can see how this is kind right um if they drink this love drink then they will love each other so they they don't come into this you know that nobody's under any illusions here right this is not a fairy tale romance for king mark and la bellezo but if they drink this love drink they'll fall in love with each other inescapably and will love each other for days of their life and they'll live happily ever after, right? So, okay, you know, thanks, Ma. That's nice. So this drink was given unto Dam Brangwine and unto Governail. so Sir Tristramus took the sea and La labellizote. <laughs> Not in the same sense, presumably. Anyway, okay. And when they were in their cabin, in the boat, right, uh, sailing over from Ireland, it happened so they were thirsty. "'And thon they saw a little flacket of gold stoned by them, "'and it seemed by the colour and the taste that it was noble wine. "'So Sir Tristrames took the flacket in his hand and sighed, "'Madam Isolde, here is a draught of gold wean that Dombrangwine, "'your maiden and Gouvernail, my servant, hath kept for himself.' "'Then they lauch and made good cheer, and either drank to other freely.' And they thought never drink that ever they drank so sweet, nother so good to them. Oh, this was the best wine ever, right? But by that drink was in their bodies. They loved either other so well that never here love departed, for well, neither for woe. And thus it happened first, the love betwixt Sir Tristramus and La Bellisode, the which love never departed dies of their life." So you'll notice that, um, this doesn't, as you can tell in most of the sources, this is where the story begins, right? Um, I mean, we often get the truage thing and the whole David and Goliath thing and all that and stuff. Uh, uh, and the, you know, the forensics and the bath and all that kind of thing, but that's just a danger thing. And, and he's, you know, he, he meets her, but they don't fall in love. They don't fall in love. Um, he comes to fetch her for King Mark, and it's just like this is just a marriage alliance, right? Between Cornwall, uh, and and he's just he's the messenger, right? Without malice, right? It's not trying to get Tristram killed, he's just sent over his messenger. And so here he is, minding his own business, right? Faithfully going about his uncle's business, and he presumably has noticed that she's cute, but she's his uncle's wife to be, right? So fi- he's just doing the right thing until tragically. They drink the love drink, and then they fall desperately in love. And now we are prepared for tragedy, right? As Tristram and Isolde desperately love each other, but he is in the midst of conveying uh, her back to his king and uncle, kin and, uh, 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 you know, legal devotion both. This is the setup for the tragedy of Tristram and Isolde most of the time, right? Um, One thing that I just have to mention briefly one of the French versions, I think it's the Beirut version of the story of Tristan and Isolde, um, which there's one version of the story, which is the weirdest version, which has randomly the love potion wears off. Just like out of nowhere, so you're like three quarters of the way through the story, and they've they've had all of these tragical things, and they've been trapped and caught, and he's been and then he escaped and he killed people, and and then she's going to be killed, and he rescues her, and they run off into the woods, and they're being hunted, but they're living together happily, and and you know living this tragic life on the run while his king and her husband chases after them and everything, and they're living in the woods, and uh and <laughs> and and it wears off and they're just like oh hey whoa uh why are we like living in the woods together that's like totally inappropriate right we should totally go back to the court because you're married to my uncle holy cow right um it's (laughs) it's super weird made even weirder by the fact that beryl points out that of course sir tristram is a great hunter So they have lots of venison, right? But they're living entirely on venison, so they actually start getting scurvy. (laughs) I'm not even making this up. It's part of the story. They're like, we have a dangerously imbalanced diet and they're getting all sickly and stuff. And then, and then the drink wears off, and they're like, "Oh, we're out of here. This is the this this living in the woods together thing is for the birds." Um, oh man, oh, that's just one of the funniest moments in in, in, uh, in medieval poetry. But anyhow, okay, so um, it's, so ma- it, Of all of the surprising things that have happened in the story of Sir Tristram so far, this is to me the most surprising. That is the fact that he keeps the love drink. But I think it's important that he does so. And this, so by the way, like, notice how, how little sense that sentence makes. And thus it happened first, the love betwixt Sir Tristramas and La Belle Isote. No, it isn't. She's been into him for a long time, right? I And it did not happen first here, right? Um... So, uh, but Maori insists that it does, right? So, okay, so why? So, what's the point? Notice that in the tragedy, Maori goes again, goes out of his way. He doesn't need the love drink. The love drink is a crucial mechanism in most of the stories. It's what sets up the entire tragedy. He doesn't need it, right? They've already met. They've already become fond of each other, especially her, right? It's super easy, right? We're ready for the tragedy already, besides the whole, like, I'm just doing this to get you killed in the first place. So uh, there's lots and lots of reasons um, why, uh, uh, why... the tragedy could perceive it. does not need the machine of the love drink in order to precipitate the tragedy, right? In fact, the fact that he gives it not only provides no benefit to the story in that way, but is actually a detriment to the story in some ways because it's contradictory to other things that have happened. And yet he does it. Yet he, 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 he does not leave out the love drink. Why not, right? Why doesn't he do this? Well, uh, again, you know, we don't really know why, but but again, this this fits into the pattern, right? Notice he he this element is there in the original. This element of accidental and inescapable. So again, that's their love is not by their choice. That's part of the essential story of Tristram and Isolde. Is not just that they are. Lovers who deviate from society because they have they choose their love, right? No, it's about compulsion, right? They can't help it, and so, in some ways, right, in the original stories, this kind of lets them off the hook. Sir Tristram, it's a bad look, it's a bad, I mean, even if you accept courtly love and you're like, okay, having you know, uh, having sex with married women is fine, even if you're okay with that. Having sex with your uncle's wife, less fine, right? Uh, uh, sleeping with the kings, with your queen, really not fine, right? I mean, it's not fine in a lot of ways, right? There's This is a deeply sketchy love triangle from Tristram's perspective, right? But he can't help it, right? He didn't choose. Maori keeps that element in, having just insisted that this is all Tristram's fault to begin with, right? He then puts in the love drink um, suggesting that there is something inescapable. Maori is literally having it both ways, right? On the one hand, Tristram's choices lead directly to the tragedy. Afterwards, after the choices that lead to this, the tragedy have been made. He then is placed in the grip of this magical spell, which compels him to love La Belle so that he no longer has any choice, right? He made the choices, but he's locked into those choices. So, both, Maori wants both of these things to be true. One of the conclusions that I would come to, therefore, from this is that both of those elements of the tragic, in and, and as much as we're what we're looking at are the blueprints of, of love tragedy here. Those blueprints include both of these elements. Both the concept that your choices matter, right? And this happened because you made the boneheaded decisions that led to this, right? But love is inescapable. There is an inescapable angle of it. There's There is a compulsion. You choose but you don't necessarily choose. Tarlonio, it's not only like free will versus predestination. It is also almost like the reconciliation of free will and predestination from Boethius, right? Both of those things are true. Uh, Tristram and Isolde are destined to love each other. They can't help it. It's their fate. And the this accident aboard ship makes it happen. And yet they choose, repeatedly choose, and definitively, emphatically choose. Keep this in mind, when we get to Lancelot and Guinevere, Lancelot and Guinevere aren't going to drink a love potion, mm-hmm. but we have these two elements, both of which I think are important. Um, and David, yeah. Had he made better choices, no magic potion would have compelled him to make a bad one. Exactly. Well, and David, of course, remember the specific bad choices he made, right? Had he just gone along with her father's wishes and married Isolde himself the love potion would have been fine, right? No tragedy involved, right? He was only in the situation where the love potion made it tragic because of the choices he had already made, right? Okay, we should stop soon. Let's see, how many Palomites slides do I have here? Oh, I've got like three or four. Okay, we'll stop. It won't take too long with that, but um. um Anyway, so I, I hope that you can begin to see some of the patterns that I'm pointing to here. And it's not going to make, it's only going to make complete sense when we get to the tragedy of Lancelot and Guinevere. And that's not far off. Um, as I said, the end of today's reading is the end of most of the Tristamini's old action. Um, so we're, we're, we're mostly done with the, their tragical love story. Not, we, there's still more, um, but we're mostly done with the heart of it. And we're going to start digressing. As you see, of course, the next section is called, uh, you know, Sir Lamorak de Gallus. So we're going to go off and follow Sir Lamorak for a while. Um, this begins the digressive elements of this central book of Sir Tristram de Lyoness, uh, which is not mostly about Sir Tristram. Um, and as we go about these ramblings for the rest of this book, in which Tristram will occasionally feature, Lancelot is also going to feature, um, The tragical conclusion of Guinevere and Lancelot's relationship is not going to happen until the end. Uh, But a lot of the setup for that, Lancelot's virtue, Lancelot's values that we were looking at are going to come to a crisis here in the book of Sir Tristram. Um, So this is not just setting up something distant in the book. It's setting up something immediate in the book. So there will be some uh, relatively rapid payoff of uh, these elements that we're exploring interest uh, in Tristram and years old. Okay. We're running significantly behind here. Let's continue with the reading and see how we do after next time. I might declare a hiatus and we'll do a catch up day uh, to sort of squeeze an extra catch up class um, in between the, uh, in between the, the, the next reading and the one after that, but let's uh, continue with the reading, the posted reading for next week. And we'll see uh, how far we get. And then I'll probably squeeze an extra week in. But for now, continue with the reading. All right. Thanks, everybody, uh, for uh, joining me. And I look forward to uh, more talk next week. Don't forget, uh, like, last moments to order the Chaucer class and um, the, you know, the discounted Chaucer class. And, um, uh, oh, yeah, Magnolia Moot. Week and a half to register. Uh, Charlotte, North Carolina Moot uh, happening uh, uh in uh on the 10th of November. So, thanks very much everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye now.